Welcome to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, a place for healing and hope for couples impacted by betrayal resulting from infidelity and or sex addiction. Your hosts are Marnie Breaker and Dwayne Osterlin, licensed marriage and family therapists, certified sex addiction therapists, and founders of respective treatment centers in Long Beach, Los Angeles, and San Diego, California. Marnie and Dwayne co-created Helping Couples Heal, a comprehensive program for couples recovering from betrayal trauma, including an in-person two-day workshop, an online aftercare program, and this podcast series is the first component of the program. Thank you for listening. Marnie and Dwayne are committed to helping you recover from the devastating impact of betrayal trauma and are honored to support you wherever you may be in your healing. If you've lost hope, you've come to the right place. Now, take a slow, deep breath, and let's begin with the Helping Couples Heal podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Helping Couples Heal podcast. We are very excited about our guest today. Um, We planned this a while ago, and um, it felt like forever when we planned it, and here we are. So we are very excited to have Stephanie Carnes with us today. And I'm going to actually ask you, Stephanie, to introduce yourself because there are, there are so many wonderful things about you and I don't even know them all myself. So what I can say in terms of an introduction is that when I did my CSAT training years ago, at that time, I believe you just did one tiny piece. You, did, you actually did the partner's piece. And that was, it was very short and Pat was still, you know, doing the, the, you know, overseeing the trainings. And so that was when I met you and that was about in 2010 and um, things have really changed, which is what we're going to be talking about today. So before we start that, can you please introduce yourself? Sure. Well, hello, Dwayne and, and Marnie. Thanks so much for having me. Hello. So I'm Dr. Stephanie Carnes, as Marnie said. Uh, my roles, my, my two biggest roles right now professionally is I'm the president of ITAP, which is the International Institute for Trauma and Addiction Professionals, where we train addiction and trauma professionals in our biggest training is the Certified Sex Addiction Therapist Training, but we also train people in chemical dependency, money and work disorders, from time to time food disorders. And then also we have a pastoral uh, sex addiction professional credential for pastors. And we also are have just started a betrayal trauma certification. So that's very exciting. And our, our mission at ITAP is basically that to try and uh, get compassionate and effective treatment for sex addicts and their families. And that's, we, we work really hard to try and get our, keep our therapists on the cutting edge of treatment and research in this area. So that's one aspect of my life. And the other aspect of my life, I am a senior fellow at the Meadows, which is a treatment center outside of Wickenburg. Um, where I work with uh, both the General Path Program and Willow House, which are uh, sex addiction treatment programs. Uh, General Path is for men and Willow House is for women. And I helped, uh, I'm the clinical architect for Willow House, our women's program. And that's been open for a few years now. So um, that's been a very exciting thing to be working on the last few years. So that's a little bit about who I am. I'm a, I'm a clinical sexologist as well as a, a certified sex addiction therapist and supervisor. I'm um, also a marriage and family therapist. So a lot of my training has been in marriage and family work. 
And are you currently working with clients now at all? Or are you doing now just those, you know, those roles that you were just talking about? Yeah. So I see clients one day a week at the treatment facilities um, and I do a lot of supervision. But other than that, that's the only clinical work I'm doing at this moment. So that's always that increases and decreases from time to time. But that's what I'm, where I'm at right now. Well, it's definitely exciting to have you on the podcast because you've been very foundational in my training as a certified sex addiction therapist. And uh, I've learned so much from you and I've really appreciated your work. So I'm so excited about our conversation today and what we're going to talk about. Yeah, me too. It's it's an area of passion of mine too. The, the way that the field has changed has been challenging and arduous and also rewarding and important and really needed needed changes have happened in the last 20 years so it's it's a very exciting topic it's been exciting to work in this area and to help be a part of that change yeah definitely i've been been able to see that change and that growth as you know i've been through the training with you and uh, watching itap evolve has been has been great and it's really awesome to see that yeah, so one thing that um, I've shared with our listeners before is sort of the fact that when I came into the field, which was um, in 2008 that I started working with sex addiction, and I think that's when I was hired at SRI, that was when the field was still very much sort of operating from more the codependency model, more of that traditional treatment. And I was working with Omar Minwala, and right from the very beginning, my training was only in the partner trauma model. So I've had a very kind of unique experience in that for me, it was just a given. I never ever looked or approached this work in any other way. But then I started to learn about the fact that most other professionals were treating it very different. And I realized that it was sort of like a, a controversial and becoming more of a controversial issue. And so I also am incredibly passionate about talking about um, how the field has changed and, and assuring people and wanting to give people confidence in the field and knowing that we're very much aware that things have, have needed to change and that we're making those necessary changes. And I really, truly can't think of anybody who would be better equipped to talk about how the field has evolved. So <laughs> I'd, I'd love to do that. And maybe we can start with Stephanie, talking a little bit about what the field was like when when your father, Pat Carnes, maybe created ITAP or started started the organization. Sure, sure. Yeah, I think it's helpful to kind of go way back historically, what to kind of start at the beginning when we're talking about this. Because if you think back in like the 70s and 80s, at that time when people were struggling with sex addiction and people needed help they would go to sex therapists and what they would get at that point is this is not a real thing. This disorder doesn't exist. This isn't real. And you still get that every once in a while. That's, it's starting to get more and more rare. People are starting to really recognize sex addiction as a real problem. But back then that was very, very common. And so what ended up happening is a lot of people seeking treatment for sex addiction went to addiction therapists. And they really started by going to the rooms and going to 12-step programs. And then as a result, ended up with addiction counselors. And so, and that just blossomed. So the 12-step fellowships all just blew up. And now we have so many and 
they're so prevalent, which is wonderful. But when it ended up happening back then is a lot of what was applied for chemical dependency was blanketly applied to sex addiction. And I think that there were a lot of ways that that worked in certain aspects of things. Like, um, you know, there are aspects of the 12-step work and individual treatment where there are a lot of parallels overlap between chemical dependency and sex addiction in terms of recovery and recovery principles and things like that. And so it worked for addicts to start there. At least that was a good starting point for addicts. Now we have fine-tuned sex addiction treatment also in many different ways. That's a whole nother podcast. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But one of the areas that that really failed is in the family treatment aspect of it, because back then codependency was the model. And it was sort of almost like asking a fish, what is water? You know, because that it was such a dominant paradigm that, you know, there wasn't any other worldview. And for, for a lot of people now, it's hard to, I think sometimes when, you know, there's a very negative stigma around codependency, but back in the seventies and eighties, that was a model that brought a lot of relief to people and was very well accepted back then. And so that was just a very, very common perspective. Other things that were really ineffective with applying what with chemical dependency to sex addiction was just not being as aware of, you know, that first of all, families were often barely an adjunct to the addict's treatment. They would be brought in, and this happened in chemical dependency treatment too, still does sometimes, where they were just kind of an afterthought to treatment. And so as such, what would happen is partners would sort of be involved in the addict's treatment as sort of an adjunct and would it was not acknowledged at all how traumatic this was for them. Oftentimes their needs weren't attended to at all. They're, they didn't get any support and disclosures were extremely insensitive. And so I think there were many, many partners that were traumatized by that. And um, also children. So family treatment, one of the things that happened with treatment centers often is people would look at age 12 as a cutoff for children to come to family week. And so there were kids that would come to family week for sex addiction that were as young as 12. And, you know, I think that was really damaging to a lot of children. So over the years, we've become much more sensitive. And I, and I think, you know, in the early days, it was very interesting to kind of watch the reaction of the paradigm shift when it started to come up. So like, I remember like, a, you know, Omar Manuala was at the, the forefront of that and Barbara Steffens in their early work, they started bringing up this idea that this is traumatic for partners and the codependency model was so, so dominant, so well ingrained. There was a backlash really against that idea. Like, no, you need to have partners look at their own stuff and they have their, their history of why they 
you know, they came from addicted families oftentimes and they'll pick one addict and then if, and then get, get in another relationship that's very similar. So very pathologizing ideas um, for partners. And Excuse me, which can also feel for the partner like they're being blamed in part. Like they're being blamed, absolutely. And a lot of, even today, there are couples therapy treatments that are very popular that are used all over the place for regular couples therapy that if they are mistakenly applied to sex addiction or infidelity, risk blaming the partner. So if you, for example, launch into EFT or Imago or those kind of models too early and you're looking at everything is systemic, like everything is a dance that both parties contribute to, which is the underlying model of systemic couples therapy, is that both parties have a role in the dysfunction in the relationship. And if you apply that model to sex addiction and to betrayal trauma, you risk enabling the addicts acting out and blaming the partner. I'm just so happy. You know, I'm so happy that you're saying that because I've seen that very well-meaning therapists who are couples therapists who don't have experience dealing with addiction, especially sex addiction and the, the not only the betrayal, but also the secrecy that usually accompanies right. it and the gaslighting miss it and really end up hurting a partner who's already traumatized. They, they kind of fall for the gaslighting as well. Yes. Yes. And so what we teach now is that sex addiction is an intrapersonal problem with personal consequences. So inter, intrapersonal problem with interpersonal consequences. So this is a, it's an addiction. It's a condition that the person is suffering with that is their condition that is impacting their family members. Yes. So that's very different than looking at it purely systemically. And it's not that I don't value systemic treatments because there are so many times when our clients need to have a systemic lens and we're looking at family of origin issues and that type of thing can be helpful. But that has to be conceptualized still within this understanding that sex addiction is an intrapersonal condition that the addict is suffering with. And that's really important. Right. And I, I think you're talking a little bit about triaging, like recognizing that, yeah, in many cases, some of those other underlying issues might be there. However, that's not what brought this couple right into treatment, or that's not what brought the partner in. That's right. You have to deal with the betrayal trauma first. It supersedes everything. So back to the, the history a little bit, when that, you know, those initial ideas first started coming up that this is traumatic for partners, I remember even sitting at a SASH conference once when Omar had given a talk and there were a bunch of people that came around him and sat him down I was watching from a distance. I wasn't involved in the conversation, but I could kind of see what was going on. And they sat there trying to convince him how he was wrong. I remember that. And for me, it was a very interesting 
time in my life because I was going through my own experience of betrayal trauma at the time. And so when all of that was starting to come out, I... So for those listeners that don't know, I I have my own history of being a partner and had just recently gone through my own disclosure. And so for me, you know, having grown up in the codependency framework and then having had experienced the disclosure, I knew that what Omar and Barbara were talking about was right. I knew they were right. And so at that, from that moment on, it was like, whenever people, you know, around me, because I was working in a treatment facility at the time, were using codependency for partners of sex addicts, it felt like a square peg in a round hole. And it just, uh, you know, I grew increasingly, increasingly uncomfortable with it. And so, and it was very interesting at the, at, during the CSAT trainings at that time, because what I started to do was present both models and say, look, you know, this is the historical model. This is this new model and, that I think has value. And there were a few CSAT trainings that, where it was like a war broke out in the discussion <laughs> where we would have, cause I always keep my classrooms very interactive and people are allowed to ask questions and share feedback and we'd have you know situations where you'd have like half the room arguing for betrayal trauma and half the room arguing for codependency you know it's really it's interesting to have you sh- you share this because years and years ago when i was working with omar i remember also very very vividly going out for lunch with him and i was saying to him you know, this whole partner trauma, betrayal trauma makes such sense. I don't understand why you keep talking about how there's such a resistance to it in the field. Because I really, I hadn't seen that part yet, like what you've just been describing. And I said, you know, Omar, I really think more people are probably on board with it than you think. And I was really trying to convince him of that. And here you are right now, Steph, saying that you heard all these people at the SASH conference trying to change his mind. Yeah. So he he was 100% right. And I was the one that was incredibly naive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't know if you were naive, but um, it, was a, it was definitely happening. I can validate his reality around that. <laughs> and I definitely can come because, you know, for me, I came very much from the addiction field and the codependency field. And really, it was that codependency was the thought process. And I remember it just the betrayal not on my radar until it was kind of like started to present in front of me. And as I got more experience with clients and with couples that I could really see the evolution of this process. And, and I'm really thankful for that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, what, what ended up happening for me is that after like a year or two of this, I just decided in my heart that it wasn't that I couldn't go along with the codependency model anymore. And so at that point in time, I had my original, this was like in 2007, I think, because I had already published my first edition of Mending and it was from a codependency perspective. And I remember feeling very ashamed of the book at that point. And like, I couldn't stand by the book anymore. And so I called all the authors on the book and told them I was changing it. 
And I said, you can either allow me to change the language in, in your chapters and go through it and change it all, or I can remove you from the book. And they all allowed me to, but I would not say that that was a peaceful process. I actually lost a couple friends out of that deal. Um, not just around the book, around this whole thing. Wow. Yeah, I've, I, had, I had a lot of pushback personally myself when I started. Cha- when I, and then I just switched the CSAT training over to betrayal trauma. So Steph, I want to stop you for one second and ask you a question. Yeah. Which is, why do you think that there was so much pushback? You know, what was, you know, if, if we were sitting here interviewing some, like one of those people, yeah. you know, who maybe you're not, you, you, you lost in this process, what would, what would they say? Yeah. So I think if you look at it from the perspective of, uh, have you ever read uh, Thomas Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions? Ever read that? No. Uh, it's amazing. You have to read that book. If you're, in, you know, after this podcast, you should go read that book. Okay. So basically what he talks about is anytime you have a paradigm shift, you have all the original people that believed in the old model will push back. And there's all of these very interesting historical references. He it basically does a chronology of paradigm shifts in this book and talks about everything from, you know, the sun being the center of the solar system, the development of the x-ray, all sorts of major scientific revolutions and the persecution that the people advocating for the new perspective get from the old, from the people that are still adherents to the old model. Um, I think we get this a little bit with sex addiction itself now because sex addiction, accepting sex as a real disorder has been a huge paradigm shift. And we still have our critics that are saying it's not a real disorder and are vehement about that. And anytime you, the same thing happened with alcoholism. If you look 40 years ago, we used to look at alcoholism as a moral problem and a lack of willpower. And there weren't even hospitals for people that were alcoholics. And when we started treating alcoholism as a real problem, they had pushback. That was a huge thing. When we had, when we started, when AA started allowing drug addicts to come in, and actually started developing NA, there was a huge pushback on that. So that is like the nature of humans, I think. When models that we, we get so married to our lenses that they become blinders. I remember I asked Omar that same question that I just asked you. And he said, this was many, many years ago. I said, I don't understand all the pushback. And he said something about, if a lot of those people who had been adhering to the old model for all of that time were to now get on board with the new model, then they would have to admit that they were wrong. Wrong, right. And that there was a lot of ego attached to that. Do you, do you feel like that's part of this? I think that could be part of it. And I think that's real. I mean, I felt a sense of shame having switched over to the new model. Like I had been doing something wrong and I had been. I feel like I did, you know, I was back then when I was looking at partners from that perspective, I think that was less than helpful. And so I think that is 
Treatment for sex addiction is we have a lot of hard-won knowledge in this field. We have been creating this as we go along. There are a lot of things that have had treatments for many years. Like you can find treatments for depression from you know hundreds of years ago. But sex addiction is a relatively new phenomenon, and it's a very difficult thing to treat. You have the issues of sex offend, sometimes, you know, differential diagnosis with sex offending and all the difficulty. There are so many challenging aspects just of sex addiction treatment that we have had to pioneer and forage through and develop. And it's been difficult. And the same with partners. And we finally, you know, I think have really gotten to a place where we've fine-tuned and improved so much and really have a very nice protocol now of what to do and how to help people. But that wasn't developed overnight. These kind of things take time. And I think that a partner's experience coming to treatment these days is a whole different thing than it was 20 years ago. And I think it's, you know, I'm proud of the changes that we've made. But yeah, I feel like I had to, there are times where I remember emailing, for example, the Sashless serve and saying, you know, I think I, that I've been wrong about this. I'm changing this. And yeah, I'm always one to admit my mistakes. So <laughs> at least I, I love that. Right. <laughs> but that's, that's great. I mean, also for me on a personal level, because I, I think I started as one of the first um, CSATs when you moved to the four module system. And I've had the privilege of watching ITAP grow through that and being able to see that very process and be able to see that openness to change that has developed Mm -hmm. with training as we get new knowledge and uh, to try and incorporate that into our learning and being able to say, you know what, we're just learning about some of the stuff. We We don't know it all. Yeah, yeah. And we can be open. And as soon as we get more information and new information, we can adapt to that and change that and help our clients the best way possible. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've had to. As a, you know, I think any organization that is 20, 30 years old has to do that and make accommodations as, as new things come up. You know, Stephanie, I when you I remember so well when you put out the second edition, when you made all those changes and you changed it to to trauma. I was so happy. My clients were ecstatic. I mean, for me, I recognize that and I do want you to know that there wasn't a part of me that actually thought about oh, that you had been wrong. I thought, wow, she's so humble and thank God she's so willing to look at it differently and to see, oh, we've maybe not been doing this the best way and now let's evolve and make the changes that we need. So I really just want to say that because to me, you were one of the first people and maybe maybe the person who was really responsible for starting to implement those changes and you know across the board. And we really needed that. That was, that was something that was desperately needed. So I thank you um, from the bottom of my heart for that. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, at times it felt like in the early days, it kind of felt like getting all the CSATs retrained kind of felt like turning the Titanic because, I mean, at that point, I mean, we have 2,000 members. And so we have CSATs, that are people that have been CSATs for 20 years. And so there was a time when we didn't require 
people to come back for CEUs. And now this is one of the reasons why we do is because we want people to stay updated and have all the new research and to have understand the new changes. And when new stuff comes out that they're, we want our CSATs to be up to date. And this is one of the things that pushed us into that because we were allowing CEUs elsewhere and things like that. And there were people that weren't, that hadn't been to an ITAP event in years. And so we started making that CEU requirement and have people come back to, you know, doing the refresher. A lot of people did it within the refresher course, which where they get updated and really transition everybody over to the new model. And it took a lot of time. That kind of thing doesn't happen overnight. And it was, you know, it was arduous. And we just kept on having to put things out there to make the change. How did some of those CSATs that had been practicing for, you know, 20 years react and respond to the changes? There were some that were early adopters. You know, you have some that were like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. But there were some pretty staunch advocates of the codependency model. And so I took a lot of heat for that, actually, from different people and organizations and stuff in the early years. So, but it was just, you know, I think because of my personal experience and just my strong belief that it wasn't the most helpful, I just held on to that. And I was kind of like, I don't don't care. Get on, get on the bus or get off the bus. Right. Thank you for being willing to take the heat. Yes, definitely. So, yeah, it's been a long journey. It's been a long journey, but it, I'm really proud of where we're at right now. I think you know there are, I think, very few CSATs that adhere to that old perspective. I mean, I I could say probably like one percent or two percent. I think it's actually probably that low at this point. So I hope anyway. And so I feel like it really has become the the dominant model. And I think people really are fine-tuning to the way that we treat betrayal trauma and starting to get our, you know, now having developed the iPast and which is our assessment instrument that really, you know, helps CSATs assess for betrayal trauma. We're starting to get, you know, so many more books out there that are really specific to help partners with specific issues like books on boundaries and, you know, groups and all sorts of things, disclosure books that are more partner sensitive that our community has developed. And really it's been a community event. I mean, I can't I can't take the credit for turning the Titanic on its on my own. There were so many vocal CSATs in our community that came to symposiums and presented and still do and have published and are writing and advocating and blogging and podcasting like you guys. And it's been a community effort. And I think it's been for what we have now, to support partners with is just amazing compared to what we had 10 years ago. It's just phenomenal. And I think that, you know, our entire membership can be proud of that. Definitely. Can you share some of those specific changes that you've seen and maybe even personally implemented in the, in the process now, in the treatment process? Yeah, we've, in terms of mod two, I can kind of go through, let me think about mod two a little bit. So the assessment, obviously we're looking at Uh, partner sexuality. That was an idea that Omar kind of pioneered. And he did that qualitative study and then 
based on his qualitative study, I created a quantitative instrument, the partner sexuality survey. And there are people that are, that area continues to develop. There are people now working on, in that area. But the, the assessment looks at all different aspects of partner trauma, like even gaslighting and how much uh, blame shifting the addict has done. Now we're measuring that on the, on the instrument, the impact on their psychological health. We're adding intimate partner violence onto there soon because of we do have domestic violence for some couples. And, you know, so there's all so many different ways that I think we're doing assessment better. Uh, we're looking at complex trauma now for partners in ways that we never were. We do a whole section on complex trauma now in mod two and try to really attend to that in ways that we haven't in the past. The disclosure process has gotten, our training on the disclosure process has gotten much, much more partner sensitive. And I think has we have a very nice protocol now for disclosure that has developed over the years. And I'm actually putting that together and we have new forms and everything that we, that they have in Montu and we're, I'm putting that together in a couple's book for couples that'll probably be out later this year. Oh, great. That is awesome. Yeah. So you can kind of see that. And the way that we treat couples is another thing that is really, we've really shifted. And this was, this has been something that has been a long time coming to and the transition started a while back really moving away from the, you do your work, I do my work, and then eventually we'll come together and do our couples work. We've really moved away from that philosophy and we're starting couples therapy a lot sooner to support the relationship and looking at ways uh, on how to do that better. And I think that has been a a huge development that's been really important. Wow. I think all of that is so awesome because it helps everybody involve the partner, but it helps the addict get better, helps the family get better. It's just great to see all of that happening and the openness to all of that change. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, something that I used to see a lot would be there's some wonderful sex addiction therapists out there that are working with addicts and getting them sober. And then they're doing fantastic in their sobriety. But the partner is over here still being gaslit, being minimized, you know, not being validated, being told to move on, even nicely being told to move on, but being told to move on nonetheless. And the partner trauma piece was just missed by the addict's therapist, right? And so, yeah, yeah you'd have all these, these really sober guys, but the relationships were completely, they, they might've even been worse than they had been at the start right after discovery. Yeah. You know, one thing I've been, I've been teaching in Mod 2 now, I, f- I forgot to mention, I developed a protocol for training addicts on betrayal trauma. So it's, a, it's called Betrayal Trauma Sensitivity Training for Addicts, which basically helps the therapists teach it, it basically the therapists teach the addicts about betrayal trauma and how to respond to their partner in a more sensitive way and this developed out of my work at the meadows because that's what we needed for our guys right and so <laughs> i started doing this group and basically ended up developing into a workshop and i had to teach the guys about this. And I developed all these little interventions and exercises. So now I teach that in mod two and teach it in the CSAT training and how there, so that the therapist can take it home and teach 
their guys about how to do that and how to have empathy and respond in a way that's sensitive. That'll be a little bit in my in my couple's book too. Some of that work is going to be in there. That's awesome. That is just great to hear all that. I love that. Yeah, because Dwayne and I are doing our Helping Couples Heal workshops specifically with that goal. It's all about educating the addict on partner trauma, you know, and then helping her understand and conceptualize her own experience more. And that it's very validating for her, but then giving them specific tools so that they can then say, okay, we've had all this trauma and what we've been doing hasn't been working. So what do we do now? Yeah. And in my experience, they're so open to that. They want to know how to respond. They're, they feel they're desperate for it. They're desperate. They, they want to help their partners, but they don't know how. And so it's for me, when I do the work with our addicts on that, they eat it up. They uh, completely appreciate the help and they, they try it. And it's been so fun watching the groups. Like, you know, there's this one intervention that I do with them where I'll get my guys to write an impact letter to themselves point of view of their partner. And I have all this, I give them all these instructions of what to include in that. So they, so it's based like, let's say I'm the addict. My name is John. So I write like, dear John, you know, I want you to know how this betrayal has impacted me and hurt me. And, and so they write it, putting themselves in their partner's shoes, which helps them get empathy. And then they I love that. And it's so fun because in the group, what ends up happening is the guys will all, I have them read their impact letter to the group. And then in the community, I get this sort of reverberation where they'll be like, oh yeah, man, I feel like you really got her experience. <laughs> I love how you said that. And then they start to support each other. Yes, I've seen that. On being compassionate and empathic to their partners. And it's wonderful because then they have like that attitude of support going when they are interacting with their partners on the phone and going home and all of that. So it's been, it's been super helpful. This is so exciting. These changes are, they really are huge because I'm thinking back to, you know, just 10 years ago or nine years ago when I was working um, at SRI and I was in charge of doing the disclosures for the partners, bringing the the partners in and preparing them and all that. And this is like worlds away. I mean, thinking back to what was going on then versus what's happening now and what you're describing, it is like, it's so exciting. It's so exciting. Yes, it's so exciting and so much better. So much better. Oh, so much better. Oh my gosh. It's it's wonderful to see on the addicts side too, because it really increases their healing and their recovery on such an immense level. Yeah, because they feel they empowered to do something. Yes. Yeah. Which it gives them, you know, a feeling it's, it feels very empowering and positive for them. Like they're actively being able to take a, a role in their healing and their partner's healing. And, you know, Steph, I, I think that really with the old model in many ways, they were, the addicts were set up to fail in terms of the relational healing. And the reason I say that is because in order to help heal the relationship, it is crucial that they're able to validate their partner's pain and really, for instance, be able to say all the things that they would identify in that kind of an impact letter. Right. But by nature, an addict, you know, dealing with an intimacy, excuse me, an intimacy disorder doesn't have the tools to know how to validate and and empathize and really to do a lot of the, the tasks that are important for them to do in order to heal their relationships. So it's, I think that this couples piece that you're talking about is so vital to this process because it helps 
couples where there is an addict who's doing all of that recovery work but can't seem to connect to the partner to really give him the ability to do that, which is what she desperately wants and needs. Right. And the cool thing is, is this model actually fits much better with their 12-step work. Because they're in their 12-step work, they're being asked to take accountability and ownership. And they're being asked to make amends and take an inventory of their own behaviors, which matches what they need to do with their partners. So it, it actually flows and fits very well, as opposed to the addict saying, um, no, I think you need to clean up your side of the street. Or, you know, look at how you, uh, what role you had in this dysfunction. You know, that just that's just not going to go over well. But to but to your your point, just okay. One one last question. I am wondering how you answer that question, which I'm certain you must have heard many times over the years, as I have. When an addict is going through the twelve step program and doing the steps, and then gets to the amends. And in many ways, you know, we talk about the disclosure with sex addiction treatment. I've heard that pushback of, well, we're supposed to make amends to people when doing so will not harm them, right? right and then right. if you're telling them all this information, that's going to hurt them. And that's been, a, that's been um, I think, a big part of the resistance to disclosure. Yeah, I think that's all about education, you know, because there's a lot of research out there now that shows, like, for example, if you look at John Gottman's research, He's very good at predicting divorce. He he can predict divorce with 95% accuracy. And if you look at his research, the people that have betrayed their partners, those that are open and honest and answer all the partner's questions have an 86% survival rate. Those that don't have a 59% survival rate. So it's a very significant difference. You know, that being honest... You can't have the foundation of true intimacy without when you have huge secrets in your life. So it's a very, I think it's an education process that you just have to, and we, as therapists, all we can do is make our recommendations. It's the addict's choice, but we can tell them what we've seen clinically and what we recommend and what we found helpful. And they have to make that decision. It is, I, I've heard that many times before, though. I, I know that there are, are many, many sponsors that will advocate for that. But what happens, you know, two months down the road when the partner makes another discovery and then another discovery, and then they're just traumatized again and again. So it's often better to just rip the Band-Aid off and come clean and get it all out when you're in, in recovery and, and move forward. I could not agree more. A lot of addicts don't realize, they think that the sexual behavior is the, is the most painful thing. It's in, for partners, it's, and it's not. It's the deception. The broken trust. Yeah, it's the lying that is the most painful. So they have to not just stop the sexual behavior, they have to stop the lying. I've heard so many partners react to the disclosure, um, literally in the disclosure session. The first thing that they say when their husband um, has finished reading it is, Thank you for giving this to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because they're, you know, such a relief to finally Finally know the truth. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. be empowered with the truth. Yeah, it's important. Well, Stephanie, what would be one last thing that you would like to add? If anybody's listening to this podcast, maybe a partner's out there listening to this podcast or an addict's out there listening to this podcast, what would you want to tell them? 
Well, I would just say recovery is possible. You know, there's a lot of messages out there that sex addiction isn't real and that it's, or that, you know, and there's just so much information that you see in the media. And I would validate this is real. This is treatable. Recovery is possible. There are many, many couples that successfully manage this and stay together and heal and are even better together after working for it. So, you know, don't lose hope. That's what I would say. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on to the Helping Couples Heal podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. We are very grateful and it's been exciting to be talking to you because you really speak my language. And that is something that makes me very grateful. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you both. Thanks for all you're doing, Steph. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, where your healing is the number one priority. If you'd like additional resources about betrayal trauma or to learn more about the workshop, please visit helpingcouplesheal.com. If you are finding the podcast helpful, please support Marnie and Duane in continuing to reach others impacted by betrayal trauma by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast with someone you care about. Once again, thank you for listening. We're grateful for your trust and look forward to continuing to support you on your journey of healing.